Good evening. Welcome to Real Talk Podcast Live with Willie and Terrell. Tonight's topic is bridging the gap between North and South Omaha, and we have a special guest, Blanca Meja with Generation Diamond. How you doing? Good, good. Thank Great you very much for the opportunity. No problem. How you doing, Willie? I'm doing good, doing good. Uh, I've been going to fight for a while to get Blanca on the show. And really uh, solidify our relationship and bridging the gap between North and South. So before we get started, though, uh, could you take a few minutes and tell us a little bit about yourself? Or a little bit about sure. It would be a pleasure to do it. Well, like I, you mentioned, my name is Blanca Mejia. I am the director and the founder of Generation Diamond, a nonprofit organization that we help young adults to find a purpose in their life and provide them with the tools needed to become excellent citizens after the justice system has been taken down. This is what we do in South Omaha. And it is a privilege and honor to be part of Omaha because I believe that we need to have a one Omaha. That's it, very simple, one Omaha. Generation Diamond, Thank you. 
and taken prep after the first uh, year she was nominated one of the best students one of the best freshmen to the central she can start and thanks to many people she got a full scholarship and she is in juniors right now but um what inspired me let me go back to your question is that i met i saw one of his classmates after three three four years in south omaha and i was in the bank so i left the, uh, the bank and she saw me and she she said she saw she told me mrs mejia senora mejia how are you and then i went in shock because this guy was looking very bad you know where the she told me that she was um, um she dropped high school she was working as a dish, uh, dishwasher she was paying child support uh, she was drinking and drugs doing drugs and everything and i felt too bad because that could, could be my son and is when i said i need to do something this is my community i really i want the best for them so i really need to go do something then is when i say i want to start a non-profit organization wow so um what are some of the what, what what are some of the tools that you provide to help sign up the, the jewels well now that i work with the um, system with um i when when my participants they they are released from jail or from prison um i go and picking them up from from there because sometimes they don't have transportation they don't have family support they don't have uh, anything i mean they have only what they are wearing so i pick them up and the first thing that i ask them let's make sure that you never come back here is what I try to tell them always. And then I ask them, do you want to eat? And most of the time they say yes, please. So we go, we have a, a meal, we eat together, and then we start to talking about how they feel. Most of them, they pay attention to things that we don't pay attention every single day. Like, uh, wow, the sun looks very nice. Oh, look at that, uh, the birds, how beautiful they are. And I am, I am very surprised because we don't appreciate that because we have it every single day. I remember one guy, he told me, I saw the same world for eight months. The same world. So uh, we help them with that and then we try to get an ID, social security, if they don't have it. And then after that, we try to find a job, a place to live. And if they are willing to do, we just have to looking for for somebody to call because they need the tools. If they don't have tools, they want to come back again. So we need to make sure that they have whatever they needed to make sure that they are fine. Well, everything that you talk about is uh, what uh, we have found out about mentors. Um, a lot of the resources that they need in order to not be seated is missing. Mm -hmm. Housing, clothing, yeah. mental health, yeah. job, job training. Yeah. Those are some crucial pieces to be able to help individuals not go back to the criminal justice system. But um, as we know, over 80% of individuals 
without faith, mm-hmm. and everyone dies. Yeah. And so these type of programs need to be in place. So my next question would be, what are some of the challenges that your organizations face in regards to doing the work? What are some of the challenges that you face? Well, what are the challenges? Well, the challenges are, for example, uh, let's see, that we have someone um, for three or four weeks. They are doing very well, but the problem is when they come back to their house, um, they see maybe the mom has a new boyfriend, and they are drinking, and they start to argue. And he knows that he's going to be in trouble. They try to, this person, wants to defend the mom and then start the problem and then they start to be on depression, they start to drinking and then once again they come back, maybe they're going to come, they're going for sure they're going to sell the drug test and the PO is going to take them to jail. So that is a problem that we have we face. We need to make sure that they are a very good environment. And they are not bad people, they are good people, but believe me, it's very difficult. I don't drink, I don't smoke, uh, nothing, no drugs. But uh, I can tell you that it is very hard because it's, it's very, very easy for people to criticize. Last year we did a um, research with Creighton University and we found out that most of them, they were in a very bad environment. They an environment with drugs. They were um, abused in many ways. We had a guy who said, "My mom, I have my mom. My mom always had boyfriends during my childhood, and most of them they never abused me except probably, but they abused me verbally, especially one of them. He always told me, and I'm sorry to say this, but he always said." You are a piece of, you know, work. You really, you are a loser. You will be in jail when you turn 19. So can you imagine to have a dad to tell you that every single day? And then when they arrive in the, you know, when they are teenagers or something to be, to feel like they didn't have a support from the mom or from the dad or the dad was no, never there. So it is difficult. It is very difficult. So any situation is when they say, I give up. I don't want anything else. I give up. And I'm going to be one of the the statistics. So it's what happened with most of them. Wow. Uh, Welcome, Brother Yusef Kassela. How you doing? I'm doing fine. How you feel? I'm good. Nice to have you on again. Thank you. Nice to be here. Uh, Tonight's topic is uh, talking about bridging the gap between uh, North and South Omaha, but we're also talking about reentry and trying to find ways and different strategies on how to combat reentry and try to decrease recidivism from returning to the population. Um, I guess my next question for you would be, what what's working and what's not working in reentry, and where do you think, what are some changes that you think should be made? Well, for me, I see most of the participants that have issues the drug test. We have a, a person.
people came to see these uh, numbers to probation officers and to make sure that their, num their numbers are home. But the problem is we have to think, these people, they don't have homes, they don't have transportation. I mean, there are problems to trying to, to make sure that they do what the court orders to do. So if they don't have transportation for sure, they're going to be late, especially in the winter time. And it is very easy for the probation officer to say, well, he felt that to be in the probation office this day. Yes, but it's winter, it's raining so far and so, so hard. So I think it's one of the challenges that they have. I saw some sometimes people who, who are in jail because they failed to appear for probation from doctors. Mm -hmm. So I think it is one of the problems. The other problem is that they have um, the background, the criminal background. They feel like uh, they they are not good enough, so we have to change the mentality that they have. Thank you. And also, we have to do that reconciliation with the families because sometimes the family is not a very good support. I know. I don't speak with my parents because sometimes the parents they say, "I am with this guy. He's older enough. Now he's 21. I finish." So it is very easy to say, "Go ahead," but they never give it to them the tools that they needed. So how is possible that you say, "Go ahead and do whatever you want," because I finish, I complete my work. Okay. Um. What? How you focus questions about oh, yeah. on reentry and what do you think has worked and hasn't worked since you been since you've been out? What, you, mm -hmm. what are some changes that you think needs to be made? I think one is the awareness of different programs and things that are being offered. I think just having that awareness in itself will increase the person at least desire or mindset of wanting to actually get on the right track. And I think one of the things that works greatly is when someone has a contact, that I call it the, the inside-outside connection. Because when a person has that outside connection on the inside, it gives them a greater deal of confidence and they know that they have someone who can help direct them and steer them in the right direction up on calling off, up on, up on calling out. Oftentimes, really, skip the word often. I'm gonna say at least 97% uh, of the time or higher, that does not occur. Something as simple as that. Something as simple as having an outside connection, someone you know you can connect to, and then you get out of this person and say, okay, you can go here, there, here, there, here. And, 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 and even when they have the inside information as to where to go, still having that outside information of someone to kind of mentor and, and guide them through this because there's a very great social damage that is done to a person that is incarcerated. One of the greatest social damages that is done is not being dealt with in prison and it's, and it's barely, it's not being, not barely, it's not even being dealt with out on the outs as well. It's something I call social impairment. And social impairment deal with the concept like when a person becomes incarcerated, that person's societal mental memory stops. Let's say a person gets locked up at 19 and gets out at 26. Mm -hmm. That's a grown man. 
but he has a social memory of a 19-year-old because that's, that's where his memory cuts off at. So when that person reenters society, that person has gaps in their conversation, gaps in their thinking, uh, gaps in their landmarks. Even if a person, so we know that landmark over here and there, here and there, and it depends on when that landmark was built, they say no, and that could be common knowledge. So that, that social adjustment, that impairment is something as simple as ordering food, something as simple as getting clothes. So someone to walk them through that, and especially someone who has already experienced all of those psychological social changes that a person needs to make to adapt back to society. And depending on how long a person been incarcerated, it takes three to five years to really cross that bridge. Mm. But the most dangerous times within that, uh, that journey is the first 90 days, mm. the first 120 days, but the most crucial time is usually that six to eight month pass. When a person comes to that six to eight month pass, they're usually getting ready to go back to prison or they're just gonna fail. Mm -hmm. So, so, in the inside as well as the outside, they really don't realize that one super factor. You can have a job, you can have clothes, food, shelter, car, transportation, all that. But the one thing that, only, that takes time is that social adjustment. And not knowing what that social adjustment is like, a lot of folks who haven't experienced it really can't speak on it like I'm speaking on it now. They don't even think about the factor of a person's social, psychological uh, mentality of being a 19-year-old coming out at 26. He's expected to do a man's job who hasn't been trained to be a man. Yeah. He's still a boy inside yeah. to some degree. Mm -hmm. He knows he has gotten older, but he can easily see the gap between his mentality and someone else at 26. He still, in some ways, have eyes like a 19-year-old. We can see from that perspective. Yeah. So I think one of the biggest transitions that has been uh, that's been neglected to answer both the questions of what uh, hasn't been done and what needs to be done is having something to make that gap. Because see, that gap is not a gap to where you can say, well, go down here, fill the application, go down there, you make that connection. Yeah. That's a psychological gap. Someone has to be mentored through that. Yeah. Through that. Mm -hmm. And the person mentoring, mentoring them through that has to know something about going through that. Even, even if they have an experience, because we don't always have to experience something to understand it, but at least if a person got to grasp it, say, oh, I'm okay, I get it, I get it. Yes, he's 26, but his social memory is 19. Mm -hmm. That's where it got cut off at. Yeah. And that's where everybody remember him, and guess what? That's where everybody, he remember as well. Unless he was getting pictures constantly while he was incarcerated, he still, and even, even then sometimes, he can still hold that same mental picture in his head of when he was 19 even up on getting some pictures three and four years later. Because it really doesn't connect that well in prison. Those memories you oftentimes are trying to live through and trying to forget. So actually, you don't remember things the same in prison as you do outside of prison. Because on the outside, you're trying to make a moment. And in prison, you're trying to forget every moment. So your memory is not grafted and attached the same way. Sorry for that long answer. Sorry. That's, I'm sorry. No, that's yeah, yeah, the cord in there. That's the because I know through experience, just having friends and family that's been through the system, they get out, and, and you know, you, you'll hear the comment like, dang, that dude's still stuck in the 90s, mm -hmm. or he, it, it ain't 2005 no more. Exactly. Like, you, you'll hear those comments, and nobody really ever takes the time to really sit down with that person and, like you said, mentor them on how to catch up with society. It's like, no, you get out, you catch up, and nobody's going to help you. And what about when a person get out and dealing with family? How do they adjust to family? Did you have issues with that? And do you, uh, Marshall, have you ever dealt with uh, trying to bring someone back into your family structure? 
I'm going to answer that, but I'm going to preface it with something that you said that also gives the fact of recidivism. Because when that person is stuck like that, that they, 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 they come out, they're trying to move away. This is going to go right into the family. They come out, and they're trying to move away from that 19-year-old mentality. They know they got older. They come back out, okay, I'm 26 now. I'm a man. I can feel a little better. They change a little bit. Probably went in with a little cute fudge. Got a little hair and stuff now. You know, and probably got a little, little, little workout on or whatever. Feeling real nice. One of the things about them, they, they, they come out feeling on such a high plane. Oftentimes, too, there's an advantage to that for people coming out from uh, returning citizens. They oftentimes can see things other people out there can't see because other people out there, they, they can kind of drumming along with it every day. They come out and see something that person that's, oh, yeah, do it this way. I never thought about it like that. They have great insights that come together. That's why they say, what kind of birds don't fly? Jailbirds. Because mm -hmm. you, you had that feeling where you can see on top of buildings, it, it, it got that invincibility in you. But then it began to dissolve as a person began to deal with this, that, and another. And this also tied back to the family. But the point that I'm making here is on recidivism. Because a person gets out, they're constantly fighting against who they used to be as opposed to who they are now. Mm -hmm. As well as tied to the family and some people in general, people only also remember you when you were 19 and you're trying to get away from that image there. So oftentimes they will approach you depending on what you know, your mentality was from that point of view. Not, not even considering that, you know, he probably has changed over the years. Mm -hmm. And so, and this is the same thing with the family. With the family, it depends oftentimes, because I, you know, I know a lot of folks who've been through this situation as well as themselves, been through, going through. It depends on how long you've been away, how much contact you had in the beginning. There's a lot of variables in that as well as what you were in prison for. That often dictates a lot of times what your family's gonna think about you as well as what other people gonna think about you regardless of how much you've been changed. You know, how you change all you want, that's what they remember. And that's the, the, the memory that has to be replaced with something better. So with family, it's the same way. It's sort of like, a, for some reason, I thought about a relationship, even though family is a family relationship, I'm talking about an intimate relationship. It's just about building up trust, rebuilding trust. And oftentimes, we just can't talk our way through it, we can't feel our way through it, we have to act. And family, as well as other folks, they have to see something from you. See? And this has to be over time. And that's only where you build trust is over time. Each of us, to some degree, we extend a certain amount of trust. Even if I came and sat in this chair, I have a certain amount of trust and faith that the chair ain't gonna just fall apart on me. I'm hoping it's a good sturdy chair. I meet someone, I'm not automatically scared of that person depending on, on the, what the situation is. So we extend a certain amount of trust. So being that that, that family, they're gonna love you just the same, but they're gonna go, yeah. they're gonna love you, they're gonna do like that. <laughs> See? Yeah, I mean, yeah, they're gonna show you all that love, but then they're gonna be just like that. See, you, you can't get so far in on that love, but they got that right there to stop you. But as you begin to earn that trust, it bags up and it ain't, it ain't nothing but love. See, you got some family, then you also got to deal with the aspect of it, and not everybody is the same in the same cookie cutter example of what I just described, because you got some family, you know, hey man, you cool, you did your time, hey man, I'm cool. That's it, because a lot of them just feel like, well, you paid your debt to society. Because whatever you went through in prison, I'm quite sure it was awful hard and difficult to be able to survive that, to be able to come back out here. So why should I put you through any more drama or trauma than you need to be put through than what you've already been through? So you got them kind of family members as well as friends, as well as strangers, people that you meet, and that's on that higher level of love and understanding, I'm gonna call that. Because some people are just so judgmental, they don't even give you a chance. Yeah. Yeah. Wow.
Well, I would like to go back a little bit on what he was saying. Uh, sometimes I remember when I had the transitional house, um, one of the participants, I remember I told him everything that he was supposed to complete it in 30 days, their time, final job, get the ID, and everything. And when he saw the list of everything that he had to do, he said, Wanda, you know what? It is Christmas to come back. Wow. And I felt devastated about it. I said, how is possible you going to come back? He said, Wanda, it's too difficult. I don't know how to fill out an application. I don't know how to even the form, the cell phone, and everything. Like you say, it's sometimes the time, one, two, three, four, five years, I mean, inside, 10 years, change everything, you know, technology. <coughs> so they felt very, very bad. So sometimes they rather to come back. And it's when we have to hold his hand, even though some people, they say, he can do it by himself. He's older, older guy, he can do it. No, we have to say, let me help you. Because when you hold his hands, they feel like uh, I have the support mm -hmm. that I needed, and I'm not going to tell <coughs> to them, but the most important, they don't tell themselves. So I'm with the family, reconciliation with the family. It's not just the family, it's the community. The community, especially in the Latino community, when you were in jail and prison, they feel like, uh, oh, be careful with that guy, we cannot talk. He was in jail, be careful. So we have to change the mentality that they have because if we don't give it to them the second chance, who else is going to give it to them? So we have to say, well, everybody makes mistakes. Let's give them the opportunity. Let's give them the opportunity. Trauma 
that they put me through from the theater. And you might want to hear about the tableau experience with the dog and the opera conditioning. Mm -hmm. This is what happened with me because every time they fed us, they blow the whistle. Mm -hmm. My mouth started salivating. You see what I'm saying? That's mental traumatization that I wasn't even aware of. But when, that, but when that happened, I knew exactly what it was. But sometimes, sort of like the PTSD, we're walking around not knowing how much we've been traumatized. And so we spend, go through a lot of things and say, wow, I didn't know this was going to be like that. And so the person, returning citizens, is often so traumatized, just like you said, they don't know how to do a lot of things. But at the same time, because of their ego and their pride, they don't want things to, to be re revealed because when they can't do something that other folks are doing, if you walk up to a machine, put a dollar in it, say change come out, they want to be able to walk up to the machine. They may not know that the dollar got to be turned that way. So if they got any problem with it, they, 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 they start to panic. Right. It didn't happen just like the last person. And they don't want it to be revealed that I don't know how to do this. Yeah. Or I haven't done this before. So don't even give a cell phone. <laughs> they totally lost. Yeah. Some of us are still lost. <laughs> So the trauma is really something that's really deep and serious. And like I said, you know, you, you, you put it on those different levels, like uh, a person like myself, I become aware of it because of knowing the experience, knowing what I've been through before. And the thing is, anyone who is incarcerated does not escape this traumatization. They may escape the degree to which they have been traumatized. I mean, it's some really, really bad situations in, in prison, a lot, a lot of people don't realize in the house, but it's going on every day. And these are the things that our loved ones have to adjust to. Then they come out here after going through all of that male adaptation, male adaptation then coming out here and expect it to be able to function. When in at 19, come out at 26, and he's a man now, but you expect him to run like every other 26-year-old, mm -hmm. with, with some with somewhat halfway responsible. He's not even close to being responsible. Because like you said, you, they don't know how to do these things because in prison they don't teach a lot of these very right. basic fundamentals. They just throw you out there, you just, you know, think of swim. And then they want people to come out and not return. That adds to the recidivism. People have to be prepared. But the good thing about reentry, and it's the best thing, is that now there's a program that's working on solving some of these problems. Because it's been known at one time it was as high as 80% recidivism rate, you know, people returning back. But it been, so it's been known, so they had to say, why are all of these people returning back? And so they're, 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 they're gradually learning what is needed. They still don't know what is needed, because I just, in my personal experience, as well as the experience of many others I've talked to over the years, I just laid out one of the number one problems in trying to fix this is because the social impairment factor is neglected. You talked about inside out. And I think a lot of people miss miss this. Um, most guys, when they're ready to get out, they jam their pants. Yeah. There ain't not enough room. Yeah. So how do you how do you build those relationships inside, and what would be the time frame to be able to go inside, build a relationship, and really to bridge them or connect them to some of the services that Diamond and Gerald and Diamond talked about? Well, the best way to to create that inside out connection is the same or uh, using the same old hat method they've been using in prison for the longest. Go be part of the organizations that they have in prison that are helping people to do positive things. 
there's the postmaster's life or, or life skills or uh, seven steps, Harambe, uh, uh, NASA, Mata, uh, a few others, I'm sorry if I left anybody, there's the Vet Club. There's quite a, quite a few of these different groups that uh, help, uh, that try to help folks get on the right track. Okay, so we create an inside-outside connection right there first, and then see what person may want to spin off from there, as well as it helps if a person is going, and this will help greatly, because here's the thing, and you may find this surprising. A lot of prisoners aren't aware of the social impairment concept, but yet they're being socially impaired. So just to bring that back to them, to allow them to, they know they're going through some things. They know that. They know they're being affected, but they're not aware of the psychological markers of being socially impaired. Uh, in fact, a lot of us say, oh, ain't gonna be no thing. I'll get back out, it's gonna be just like yesterday. Never again. Mm -hmm. Your mojo ain't your mojo anymore. <laughs> so that's, that's something that is greatly needed. So taking, in, taking programs in, as well as first going in, getting acquainted with the different groups and different people, et cetera, letting them know where you stand from, where you're coming from, what your organization is about, et cetera, the basics. Then, then looking for where you can fulfill something within that organization, be able to contribute something to them, as well as take something from them, because one of the other things that has been highly neglected, and this is just about like a top secret, a lot of prisoners in a lot of these organizations can really be used for research. Uh, you know, they can really be, and especially depending on how much fees they can get to do the research, because they, and the think tank I'm saying, like a think tank. So a lot of problems we have it out here, they can actually help at least from a theoretical viewpoint, giving us the psychological, philosophical, economical, political, social insights to a lot of the ideals and things that we struggle with, you find that a lot of them have a lot of powerful ideals in them. And so that creates an inside-outside connection too, because it's not about just giving, but it's about giving too. So the best connection is if we can give something to them and get something from them, then they know they're being useful as well. I want to speak on that. Um, <clears throat> about 10 years ago, um, I started going into something. Brother A from Rocker and Brother Alan came a little bit later. And all we did was bring in Harambe and Postmaster and just listen. They have some of the most intelligent brothers who are willing to mentor and help young folks who are coming inside the prison. But also they do a think tank. They come, up, they come up with different things and programs inside the prison that have been proven to be very successful. And the reason why I started uh, our school was birth out of the country. Mm -hmm. I said, Brother Hamilton, man, look, man, we need to be able to go to a trade or be able to start our own business. Because then we don't have all the barriers that come along with it. So I said, I don't know nothing about no skills. I don't, know, I don't know nothing about that, but I went to do research. I went and got Bill Dunn to actually help me create the school. And we put a union, made 11 of, 11 of those 18 unions, and they have such a need for folks in the trade and entrepreneurship. And they had something like a shark tank. So they would come up with creative ways of how to start a business. Man, man, some phenomenal ideas how to start a shoe company, a shoe company. 
how to see movies, how to come up with creative ways to do holistic approach to be able to help individuals not come back into the church. And also that stuff came out out of Harambe. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a missed opportunity for us. And Tommy Wilson, he's the one that said, look, y'all on the outside talk about what you folks need on the inside. Yeah. Y'all need to come mm-hmm. and bring all these resources inside the prison. Mm-hmm. Right? So these individuals know that these in, these resources are out there. And you need to have a booklet. Mm-hmm. And you need to keep it up to date. Mm-hmm. Because you they, they have yeah. a booklet in there. But you know, five years, all the members are lost, they can change position and things of that nature. And they need to start by doing that. And they need to have these different folks go back in, meet with these folks, talk about their program and some of the resources that they have to offer inside the prison. Mm-hmm. Don't wait till they get out. like to give you an example of what you are saying. We have a participant in our program. He was in jail for 11 months. For 11 months, he didn't have nobody here. Someone gave him my business card. So he called me from jail and he said, could you please make the connection between me and my family in Mexico? I don't have nobody here in the United States. So we did that connection. I went to visit him every month, every month. And I told him what time. I told him, this is what you have to remember. They can conquer you, your body, inside of you. But they cannot conquer your mind. So I want you to be very positive that one day you're going to be, you, you will be released from jail and you're going to have a new life. We were in the process of waiting for him what is going to happen. He was facing maybe 10 years. So, but uh, something, a miracle happened. He was released two weeks ago. But because we have the connection, he called me. The first person that he called was me. He called me and he said, Mrs. Borja, I am out. They let me go. Please pick me up. I went to pick him up, he was so happy. We took him to the office, then we found a place that he could take a shower. We gave him the clothes, everything. He gave us haircut. Now he divorcing, came to Juan Alvarado. He has a, a job from with the Carpenter Junior. He has another job too. He has a place to live. He's fine, in less than two weeks. Can you believe it, in less than two weeks? He has everything, everything that he needed. He needs more things, but I mean, the basic things, they are covered. But it was to the connection that we have inside before he was released. So needs to be, the need be, need to be met inside. I am agree with you. How can cross-cultural cross-cultural relationships be built inside and then when individuals get out no matter if you live in south or north omaha those relationships are able to be connected so just because you work with more of a a latino population african-american person could could give some insight on different services and vice versa how can those relationships be built and sustained well before our name was Latino Community Development Corporation, but people, they thought that I just helped Latinos. Mm. 
because my name, the name of the non-profit, so you need this site to change the name to Generation Diamond to make sure that everybody feels welcome. So what we do, we serve anyone who solicits our services. I know that, I don't know many things about the culture, but I am learning. I am in the process to learn how to do it, but we serve everybody. <coughs> and I, I thought about changing uh, our name uh, of our organization, but I want to be intentional that because of the disproportionate uh, black folks in the prison system as a whole, that I needed to represent those individuals. And then it had a lot of individuals who thought, well, just because you know, we can't, you know, our organization is black men united, so we only focus on black men. No. Our primary focus is, is black men, but we have demons in our past, we have whites in our past, and we in our past. So, but we want to be, be very deliberate and unintentional about black men and black men being incarcerated and to be that, be that voice for those and advocate for those individuals. Yeah, one of the things that I find unique, and you see this if you begin to look, you will see it kind of like everywhere you go. But I found it unique when I was going to town hall in prison. And you didn't have to tell anybody who had a gift of their assignment, although there's like 30 seats. Well, this is really complicated. <laughs> <laughs> There are certain seats people know not to sit, the certain areas people know not to sit, excluding those. So there are some seats where it's already known, don't you go there. Yeah. But the general seats for any, for any and everybody, but those are the seats we're talking about. But with those seats, I always find it amusing when you're walking through the town and you see the white guys go over there. You can see the Mexican guys, Latino <laughs> guys go over there. You can see the black and brown guys go over there. And no one has to tell anybody anything. <laughs> Or you go to the gym, you can see that on and on and on. But this ain't just prison. Work on your job. Do you go to your break room? Any place like that. You know, people kind of naturally gravitate towards their own. There's a reason for that. When we keep trying to act unnatural, it is natural for black people, Latino people, indigenous people, who they say misnomer Indians, uh, white, uh, Europeans, white people, etc. It's natural for people to gravitate toward their own. If I go to a party, yeah. and this is a strange party way, and I don't know anybody in that party, then I see a brother or sister, I'll be like, yeah, okay, I see it might be a connection. <laughs> you know, yeah. I don't even know this brother or sister. Yeah. They might be square as a block. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, ain't feeling me at all. Yeah. But, but just because I made that one initial identification, yeah. me, someone that looks like me, mm -hmm. I can go over there and holler at the brother or sister, then turn around and say, oh, <laughs> going by my business. I might be fooled. I might go, hey, what's that? We might dap it up before you know we hit it off. Okay, I got a chance, and he or she got a chance now. At least to feel more comfortable in this environment. Yeah. So that's what people naturally do. I think one of the, it's sort of like when people say, I don't see race. <laughs> I feel insulted. <laughs> I feel insulted when people talk about, I don't, I don't see race. You just insulted me. You, don't, you mean you look at me with these locks and all that? You don't see a black man? Come on now. See, so we're trying to act unnatural. Mm -hmm. Let's acknowledge who we are as human beings 
One, yes, we're one human group, we know that. But let's acknowledge the, the different groups within that one human identification. Let's acknowledge that. Quit trying to act like it doesn't exist. And this is where cultures then become more important. Because I'm not trying to make you blend your culture to mine or you go my culture to yours. Now if we choose for whatever reason or process that happened, because culture is transferable. Because it isn't transferable, you don't have culture, you have something else. Because all culture is transferable because all culture in itself is really uh, let me give a short version on this. A synthetic adaptation of human beings adjusting to our thoughts, ideals, and concepts about where, where we get our values, our ideals, and traditions, and things of that from. In short, you know, it can be multiple definitions from different people on that. But in short, that's what it is. It's about refining us, getting rid of the wild, and putting in the refined where we can prosper socially. That's what culture is supposed to be about, creating values, traditions, and customs. So those things are transferable. I can wear your colors, you can wear my colors, but we identify them as your colors. Mm -hmm. So what's that, uh, uh, white, or uh, red, white, and red, white, and green? Yes. Okay, red, black, and green. Yeah. Those are universal African colors. See, so in short, well actually I got way away from the point that was, you were talking about bridging the gap, but I just wanted to lay like a little background mm -hmm. to it because, again, we're talking about the inside-outside connection. I think if you really want to bridge gap inside prison, it is best first done on the, on, it is done first, it's done best first on the outside. Like whatever coalitions that we can create, find a common ground that we can battle on, use that. And so when we use that common ground, they have Latino people inside that they got connections with. We got black African people inside that we got connections with. We trade names, we trade ideas. And we make then we make sure that those that are incarcerated under your list mm -hmm. be aware of people on our list. Yeah. That we are helping with these. If you talk to so-and-so, then you know so-and-so, so-and-so. Mm -hmm. And these could be people who, are, who may be enemies in prison. But once they get that connection, a lot of times when you make a connection, it goes a long way. One of the first things I did when uh, and I say this, I let it go. I'm kind of long-winded tonight, so excuse me. But I say this and I let it go. One of the first things I did when I became a, 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 a OG, I wasn't that, I, I mean, I'm not an OG, but I'm saying from their perspective, when I became an OG, when I became old school, one or two times, a pop, because in, in prison that happens at 40. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm 57 now, but so, so, so in 40, when that happens, you know, you're like, hmm. So one of the first things that I, I learned over the years, especially do, dealing with young people, because I always like the fact that I always, like today, I still got the connection with young people. I can get right with them. And, Talk with him, got that connection. But I ain't trying to use that lingo and all that old stuff because I don't really keep up with all that. But every now and then I try to learn a word or see if, if I can get turned, I don't really say that, something like that. You know, I try to learn a word too. But it makes, when I meet a, a youngster that I don't know, one of the first things I try to do is make a connection with the youngster. Who your people is? You know where you're so and so And all we have to do is know one or two people along the way. That's a connection. So therefore, we have already created a social bond. So when you mention to your people that you got we're you 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 know you're aware of the list of people that we working with and talk with so and so or have you ever talked with so and so somewhere in between there they begin to communicate with each other we begin to create an outside inside connection yes. to where it is beneficial to both the black and the brown. Yes. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're trying to do from outside. Okay. Yes. And that's why I connected with Blanca. And that's why I've been working with Juan at a lot of. Yes. For the last seven years, um, when we go into a prison, uh, first 
most of the people came outside to black. After a while, they went back and started popping the yards. And then we found out now Latinos start coming outside. Mm-hmm. And then Cubans start coming outside. So we know that that process works. Mm-hmm. It's about building a relationship. And it's about uh, them believing that they they can they can uh, you can support them and you can believe in them. Because yeah. a lot of them have never had that support. Yeah. Probably had a negative aspect of it. So that's why we are bridging North and South mm-hmm. to that exact so uh, talk a little bit more about the collaboration between North and South and what we're trying to do with North. Sure. I am really very excited to be part of uh, NORA because I can see different organizations working together. Um, in Jamaica, you were saying, working together for the same purpose, to help people who are inside and to have different resources because sometimes I don't have something that black men unite have. So it will be good to say, I cannot help you, but you know what? We have somebody in this part of the city who can help you in this in this way. So I think it will be great. And like I told you before, I believe that we have to be one Omaha, one Omaha strong together working for the same purpose is what I believe. So it is exciting. I am ready for that. We're looking at this as it has to be a holistic approach. You can't just worry about one piece of the pie. It has to be holistic. You have to have the mental health piece. You have to have the job training. You have to have the housing and other things wrapped up in that. So do you agree with that, uh, Lisa? Uh, And then if not, what are some of the things that need to be included in that? Yeah, I believe in a holistic approach, even though, depending on how in depth a holistic approach is designed, if it's the one that's designed, let's say, probably with maybe three different stages in, the beginning, middle, end, and the design where it's not going to be dragged out, but then there's the holistic approach where you're talking about something that has to be a continuous something where it becomes a, a way of life. That type of holistic approach is a little tougher to sell. Because when you're trying to sell the, the holistic approach, it's sort of like how pizza shop one time got, one day got smart and said, well, it's a lot easier to sell a slice of this pizza than it is to sell this whole pizza. And then once one pizza shop did that, they said, well, a lot of other pizza shops are selling a slice. You want it to get sliced. It, it kind of sounds ridiculous at first. You want a slice of pizza? You want to buy a whole pizza. But now it's, it's, it's common because it's easier to sell the slice as a whole. So the holistic concept is the same way because the person has to take on a, a piece from the, the social, political, economical, educational. You have to begin to take on all of these things and fit these things into one's life. But I think even with the holistic approach, it's not just all, but sometimes it's like out of these five things that's needed, which, which one is needed most? So even from a holistic approach, we have to begin to prioritize what of this holistic approach needs to be applied first and what and, and most? Mm-hmm. In other words, if someone's over there smothering, we need to get we need to pull over whatever that is and suffocate them first before we can do anything else. But we ain't worried about the shoes. We get shoes later. We need to we need to make sure this person not suffocates. Mm-hmm. See, so we have to prioritize our holistic approach. And also, one of the things that 
I, I think tend to get left out of, of these conversations, which I find kind of peculiar, but also there's an organization that also deals with, uh, I think it's called uh, Families for the Incarcerated, something, something along that nature. I'm sorry for pushing up there. Oh, oh. Families for the Incarcerated. Oh. Friends and families of inmates. Friends and families of inmates. Yeah. Okay, right, so they deal exactly with that. But one of the things that truly adds to the holistic approach is everything we're just talking about, as far as recidivism, uh, returning citizens, et cetera. And this can be something that is really hard because I find even like with myself and my social ideals and concepts, these things I have learned and studied and come to believe in, I have to always make adjustments from around other people who have not read, other people who have not studied, other people who do, who do not have an Afrocentric concept. Other people, all they know is in all day. See, so I have to constantly adjust that. See, so, and one, and, and one of the things that makes it really difficult is getting family on board. See, and that's what makes it really, truly, truly hard because a lot of bridges have been burned. A lot of folks get comfortable, you know, you know, it's sort of like, well, he's in there now or she's in there now. And they get comfortable with him or her being incarcerated and they, they, they do less. They may do more in the beginning as, as time goes on, they do less, et cetera. But keeping that family connection, mm -hmm. because the truth of it is, there's not a social ideal on earth that would work without the weight of its support. Mm -hmm. And the greatest weight and support that anyone can get in any situation is always family because family is truly the nucleus of any universal social power system. So therefore, if you don't have family connected, because a lot of times you get other folks that connected because we're in an organization. We're, we're part of a group. But see, a family may not be part of an organization, part of a group, no nothing. So how do you graph them into this? One, one we need to have, have, have them in groups and organizations. But two, if, if not that, how do you graph them into the concept of helping the return uh, or helping lower the recidivism rate, helping return the citizens, helping help bridge the gap between the black and the brown? How do you get folks involved in that who don't even have a social consciousness? Let alone a familial consciousness, they don't even have that. See, so family is the, the, the key crucial concept here as far as working with that individual because that individual, and I, I say this and I let it go, when a person incarcerated, or male time or something else, has a, we talk about traumatization and all the psychological ranges versus male time or something else. Just looking for male, anything, anything. You can jump male, anything. But the, but the one piece of male they want more than anything is male from their loved ones. Male from their loved ones. That is truly the key crucial concept here to get family on board. But see, then you create a wider network, and you also, which is what we do then, is we intensify the emotional impact and passion that is involved in it. Because oftentimes people who are just doing things from an organizational point of view, and this is not true of all, all folks I'm just saying, it's more functional or, or pre-functional than it is anything else, because it's part of what you do as an organization. But a family, what they're doing, they're, they're doing it for love, passion. See, so that's gonna add a different dimension. They bring that to the organization as well and adds a, 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 a greater human component to it. Oh, yeah, yeah, we want to just touch on that. Um, um, I got five out of my six brothers have been in prison. And it has put a strain on the family as a whole. Um, a lot of
how my family was like or have any communication with my brother. So how do you get more families who are directly impacted by this to really be advocates and really be champions, if you will, uh, around the nation? like the organization perspective, perspective, people are kind of like thinking their way through it, like what do we need to do next, how can we make this work? The families are feeling their way through it. Do I really want to build it? Do I really want to do this? Do I really want to put those things in there? Uh, we borrowed those things, we borrowed those stuff. I just don't have the time. I got this to do, I got that to do. It's, it's a different perspective. It's, it's being framed differently. And of course, there are some family members who frame it differently. Like, hey, I got to write my uncle. I got to write my brother. You know, they frame it differently. They have a different perspective on it. Mm -hmm. But the question is, how do we get them involved? This is where we're going to flip family and organization. Family has to become like an organization. There has to be someone in that family who is willing to take charge and be responsible for making sure that other people in the family are connected. It is that person's duty or one or two somewhere. It doesn't have to be one person in the family. At least that one person has to spearhead the concept. The family has to begin to see, I believe that the, uh, in order to accomplish the things, and here I'm gonna go strictly with African people, in order to accomplish the things that we need to accomplish, I believe that the, the family social structure needs to be revamped. It needs to be revamped and we need to be taught some things that we need to institute within our families. Uh, something like say we have a family library so every family household has a certain library or we have a family trade or, or profession or we have a family savings account stuff like that the family has to begin to operate like an organization you got the love there so once you begin to operate operate like an organization you begin to be more responsible to each other as family members because oftentimes family members aren't really that responsible to each other they're just responsible to themselves and oftentimes what they can get from each other family member without making their contribution or, 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 or waiting to hoping that someone don't call them to make a contribution. And of course, that can be flipped too. See, so the family got to become like an organization. Somebody got to get in and say, hey, you got to put, pull the family together, got to do the legwork. See, because yeah. oftentimes there's no one in the family really doing the legwork, so everybody get comfortable, get comfortable and just get used to what it is. But any of these things, you talk about changing the family, we already been reared up, we already been learned a certain way, already been taught a certain way, already been, and then especially the older we got, we're already locked into our certain perspective and philosophy on life. We got our life that we live in, our children, our family, et cetera. You want me to contribute to some kind of family ideal? I got my own family to take care of. See, so we're up against thoughts like that. But if we can get each family member to participate in some small part, start small in increments, because we're not used to it. Just like John Henry Clark said, power needs rehearsal. Even as African people here in North America and throughout the world, African communities, for the most part, we're not used to commanding power. We're not used to wielding power. So families aren't used to being powerful social units because we're used to being dysfunctional social units. So we have to re-teach these things or teach these things to ourselves and set up social structures within the family where people take different responsibilities for different parts that we need to play in the family. A lot of family accounts. Too many of us dying. I'm gonna say this, I'm getting off track. But I'm gonna say this, too many of us dying and can't even pay for a funeral. At least, at least, at least start a family savings for neighborhood, someone passed. You can't, you don't even have move. Now you got to go up to a fish fry, you got to do this, wash some cars, you got to go out to relatives. No, 
create that as part of your family social structure in a continuous fashion. Therefore, you have money to cover certain things. Everybody make a contribution to that. Family must be like an organization now. Why are you speaking on some truth? <laughs> Teach me those the truth today. Um, and and that, that video piece, so many people are dying, and we see them on the corner trying to raise money, or you know they expect their family members to be able to come up with the money. Uh, it's, it's, it's a very uh, disarming thing, and you just hit on it so much. And you would think that the individuals who have been in, in the incarceration would be those individuals who want to rally and uh, educate each other, and, yeah. but it's, it's not. And uh, it was training for me. You already know because you've been in. So now you even got your life together, how can you give back and make sure that someone in your family go down and don't go down the same road? So as a young man who experienced some of these uh, incidents, and you was able to be that diamond, and I could tell you really about your story, but you really have become a diamond. And how were you able to do that? Um, yeah, how was I? Uh, I would say I just always, uh, I just always had in the back of my mind that if I messed up, I would let my mom down. Cause I, cause I just always remember vividly the days when I started crying cause she couldn't pay the bills or like something like that. So anytime I ever put myself in a situation where I might've been arrested cause it was a lot of times and it was a lot of times I was shot at and bullets would go across my head or like I just been in those situations and I just always like at the end of all that stuff like dang man. I can't tell my mama this because I because I feel super embarrassed about it. So uh, I don't like some days I feel like I got lucky in a way because a lot of my friends we all was on the same path and a lot of them didn't get to where I'm at right now. I I say just having my wrestling coaches in my life, Roger Parker, Joe Edmondson, Curly Alexander, uh, Coach Denny. Um, it's, um, and then even so with all that, I got a college degree. I couldn't get a job for like the longest uh, because I had been arrested before. And in my eyes, I was like, dang, like I got jumped by the police. Why are y'all punishing me? Like, look at what I've done. I like, I, like, I got, I got arrested, but I got a college degree, uh, like, in my eyes, I'm like, I'm not a criminal. I, I, I think I've been redeemed. Completely. But in, in the eyes of many, it's like, no, you, you got that on your record. That's on your record. That's you. And it's humbling. It, it has been humbling. Uh, but it's also my motivation to do what I'm do, doing. It's also my motivation to go to law school because I know as many more people that have been in my situation that ain't gonna have the chances I've, I've, I've been given or the opportunities that are gonna be stuck in a lot of situations and don't got proper legal counsel or like just that, that's my motivation. Um, it's just, it's, it's been, it, it's never easy because a couple of weeks ago, I just had one of my closest, one of my closest little cousins. He used to spend time with me and my brother a lot when he was a kid. He just got sentenced to the feds for like eight years. 
And that was hard, just being there at, at, in court, watching him cry, seeing his kids, and that just hurt me. It was like, dang, what could I, like, I'm sitting there like, what could I have done to make sure he didn't end up in this situation? So it's, it's just stuff like that that just keep me going because, I mean, I got all type of cousins in the feds and the state pen. I got cousins going, waiting, waiting for trial. And these people I talk to on a daily, I got friends and family still in the street that I talk to daily. I spend time with every week. And they know what I'm doing, and they're still doing what they're doing, but I don't judge them because I understand in a, in, a, in a lot of ways why they're doing what they're doing. And we talk about, like, doing the right thing. I had a conversation with my cousin last night. He's like, man, I'm in the streets, but I'm looking for that opportunity to get out as much as possible. Once, once that opportunity presents itself, I'm out, bro. Like, I don't want to go to the jail. I don't, I don't want to get a felony. And it's just, and I just always, when I talk to them, I just try to motivate them to get them to think different and try to find different ways to stay out and take care of their kids and make sure we just fall together. Cause it, it's like, I think I posted something on Facebook one day. It's kind of hard for me to do what I do and not be able to celebrate with the people that I really love and the people that is there from the beginning. It's hard for me to say I'm happy. I'm happy I'm going to law school, but there's so many people that ain't here with me on this ride, whether they're in, in prison or, in, or they're dead. So it, that's, just, that's, that, that's just what keeps me going. It's just, it's just that, my life experiences. That's some real talk, man. Yeah. And that's really why, <clears throat> Things 
because you feel that the self, a lot of individuals that in internal deficit to be able to be successful, what would be those three things? First, it has to be studious, first of all. Because if a person is studious, they can branch them out in a whole bunch of areas beyond just entertainment. So first of all, they got to be willing to be studious, willing to sacrifice their hangout time, basketball time, and a whole bunch of other different things. And not that anything is wrong with any of those things, it's just that when you're being studious, you have to be able to have a purpose as well as long as being studious, because that, that directs your study. Don't just study just to be studying study for a specific purpose in mind. That's what gives them the motivation to let them know that they're in it for the long haul. This is just not a one-time study bill that I go back to what I was doing. But they, they, they have to be able to study long-term, try to get some goals and short term. Just continue, continue being studious. The second thing that I would say get the person that becomes studious and start learning some things is to share. Always share what it is that you know because in the process of sharing, it also allows you to know how much you, have, you know. Because in order to, when you become studious, you're taking in all that information, it ain't gonna be able to leak out like a little rainy bucket. But if you're taking that information and sharing, it also begins to show you how much you have retained, as well as how much uh, value and meaning you put to different things and different ideas. And you get, as well as to be able to uh, teach and reach another person. Now, now you have a, another connection to it. You're studious, you have purpose, now you have passion because you are sharing. So be studious, share, and this one, and I don't mean it in the, I don't know, the same sense that other may, people may say it, and I don't really know what that sense may mean when other people say it, but I think I'm, I'm talking about somebody being incarcerated. Because if you're studious, you got purpose, focus, motivation, and all those things. I think a person needs to horn their moral compass. Because you can be intellectual, mark, all that, have a trade, a job, all these different things, car, home, blah, blah, blah. But if you don't have a good moral foundation, now, now when I say uh, horn in the moral foundation, that's really not my answer. Because my, my, my answer is the way in which they go about horning their moral foundation. And that's, I would say, through some type of spiritual foundation. I'm not going to advocate any one particular. I prefer Christianity, but I'm saying have a spiritual background. Because the best way that I have seen for people to really horn their spiritual compass is through spirituality. Mm -hmm. And you can believe what you want about it, whether it's you know, myth, not real, not true. But I know one thing about it, whether you believe it or not, the information you find in a lot of spiritual books or some of the best information you're going to find when it deals with morality, ethics, standards, and values. Because that's where a person has to be changed at the heart and at the root of themselves. And see, with that, it gives that person that's incarcerated a true sense of dignity. Because the one thing that's really broken about them, the one thing that makes this social impairment concept lead them to return, become another recidivistic statistic, is because they don't have self-worth. They don't have self-value. So all of those things are designed from a holistic viewpoint to create dignity in people, where they know their self-worth, know their self-value. Therefore, they can feel good about themselves. All the time, the more you feel, the better you feel about yourself, 
the better you're going to think, the better you're going to act, and most importantly, the better you're going to treat other people. Well, our name is Generation Diamond Organization, and we are in the process to get uh, our new uh, Facebook page. So Generation Diamond will be our uh, Facebook page. And let me complete. It was very similar. I was writing everything, but uh, I believe that you have to have God. If you have God in yourself, everything is possible. It doesn't matter what religion, but make sure you have it too, because it's going to make you to feel like that. You are capable to face whatever is coming. Number two is um, to have a purpose in your life. We need to have a purpose. But when you you say, I want to get this, like as you were saying, I want to go to the school to do this and do that, but you need to take action to your dream. Because otherwise, it's going to be your dream. It's going to stay there. And the most important is, one of the most important things too is believing in yourself. Because if we, we don't believe in ourselves, whatever comment we hear for, from others is going to hurt ourselves. So if you believe that you want to be able to make it, it doesn't matter what your mom, stepmom, or friends, anyone, you know where you go, it doesn't matter what happens after, is what I can tell you. But please uh, feel free to contact me. I am here to serve you, anyone, everybody, Generation Diamond. All right. Um, thank you all for tuning in. Uh, we'll see you, see you again next week. We appreciate appreciate y'all coming and talking to us. It was a great conversation. Class, uh, we will have a open house Thursday, North Markham Hall, Williamsburg Line, uh, seven o'clock p.m. at Money Center, forty-two hundred North Forty. Lastly, um, this this man right here. Folks who you really need to reach out to him. Uh, he is a phenomenal intellect. Uh, I think he has solutions to a lot of the problems around the interest. Um, he just needs opportunities. Uh, so you definitely reach out to him to speak or to speak to your staff uh, or work on programs, create programs, curriculum. He can do that. So, Misha, how can folks get in contact with you? Maybe, you know, maybe speak or work in uh, particular areas outside of the Yeah, a person is really just contact me by calling me at 531-205-5994. My primary interest is dealing with social concepts. I can speak on pretty much any subject or topic that a person wants to be spoken on and, and want me to advocate. Only thing I try to do is if I'm speaking on a topic to advocate for someone else, I at least want to be able to have a genuine involvement in it. But I can pretty much speak on any topic. That's what I do. I've been doing professional speaking for more than 30 years. I'm a poet and unpublished writer as well. And I've created my own social theory called a vocalism, but that'll be studied for another time to go into that. That's mostly where 
I've been speaking for without mentioning the vocal concept. A lot of my thoughts come from the African philosophical school, uh, universal social power, the power of African people dealing with the concept of aerobism. I, I, at another time, I will explain that concept of what it meant to be able to speak with groups like this. But basically, the person just called me, we can set up something, and the person wanted me to come uh, do a presentation, speech, or any speaking or anything like that. My primary interest, of course, is black people, African history and philosophy, and studies and things of that nature, and pretty much any subject dealing with that on the political, social, cultural, educational, religious, et cetera. So I've been pretty much touched on all those subjects, have touched on all those subjects, and uh, that's the thing that kind of drives me and motivates me. And anybody got anything for me, I'm ready to contribute. And lastly, um, I want to thank Mr. Pharrell McKinney. Um, he really is definitely has is a diamond. Uh, we get so proud of him. Uh, he's Dr. Russell, and all this, uh, and uh, he even has some other surprises for folks. I'm gonna let him wait until <laughs> folks uh, at a later date. But uh, stay tuned. Uh, interesting. Uh, I want to thank everyone for uh, tuning in tonight, and I definitely thank you for. Thank you. As always.